Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. This conversation is about the book on Zionist literature, and it's one of my favorite books of the year. A little about the book. Um, on Zionist literature is translated into English for the first time after its publication in 1967. Hassan Kanafani's uh, on Zionist literature makes um, incisive analysis of the body of literary fiction written in support of Zionist colonization of Palestine. The book is, um, it's wonderful and it comes with a new preface with um, Annie Kanafani. And for those of you who have read Ghassan um, Kanafani's work, he's of course regarded as one of the finest writers and journalists in the Arab world. But sadly, so much of his nonfiction is still not available to us. Um, one way to to talk about um, his work is to actually use Annie Kanafani's words, where she actually says that um, when she first met Gassan, uh, she said that I felt I was confronted with an exceptional human being. And a lot of his body of work in such a way when you're reading it for the first time in translation in English, at least for me, is that you feel like you're confronted with an incredibly rich body of work, literary and um, otherwise. Joining us today to excuse me. Joining us today to um, discuss this book is Louis Alday. Uh, he's an historian and a writer. He's the founding editor of Liberated Texts. His writing has been published by Ebb Magazine, Monthly Review, Electronic Intifada, Jedalia, and Rope Magazine, among others. He has a PhD in history, which focused on how Britain used the British Council as a tool of cultural propaganda in the Arab Gulf states. Louis, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, Thank you. Um, tell us about the series that you've edited and tell us about um, why on Zion, why Zion, why you chose Zionist literature as one of the books in the series. Yeah, so the the series is um, a collaboration between my website, Liberated Texts, um, which is essentially a book review website, but not for new books, books that have been overlooked, neglected, or, you know, in some cases forgotten uh, for different reasons. Um, and obviously one of those reasons in some cases is things that were never translated into English, so didn't receive a, a wider audience. Um, and so, yeah, it's a collaboration between Liberated Texts and Ebb Magazine, uh, the publisher. And yeah, this is the first, On Zionist Literature is the first uh, in the series. It, just to be clear, it won't, it won't all be books that are Kind of the first ever English translation. Some will just be re republished, but from when I had the idea, both for the website and for this series um, on Zionist literature, was kind of at the forefront of my mind. Um, well, to be more exact, the fact that Kanafani's nonfiction had not been translated, uh, or with, with the exception of his short article about the thirty six thirty nine revolt. Um, because I had begun to read his nonfiction in Arabic probably over the last two or so years, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and then when I read on Zionist literature, it was partly just an instinctive thing uh, that I just felt this has to be translated. Um, and then when I read that was about that was about May last year, and then I realised that July of this year would be the 50th anniversary of of his 
uh, and his niece Lemise's killing, um, it just felt very appropriate to publish it in time for the 50th anniversary. And that's when it that's when it was released on Jul July the 8th of, of this year. Um, I, yeah, I just wanted to be very clear about something as well. I'm not I'm not the translator. Um, Mahmoud Najib is the translator. I did work very closely with Mahmoud and did kind of get involved in the translation, but he is the translation. Uh, he is the translator. Sorry, so I certainly um, can't take credit for that. Um, and he did an incredible job with what is not for in a number of ways was was not an easy uh, text. Now, I think that kind of really leads us into the next question. Um, you talk about this not being an easy text. Tell us why this is not an easy text and some of the challenges both you and Mahmoud faced while translating this text. Um, yeah, so I, there are many reasons. Um, one kind of slightly more just mundane is that, as I think is in common with quite a lot of texts from that time period published in Arabic, it essentially wasn't edited. Um, so it's actually as, as brilliant as it is, it's actually, it, it, the Arabic is quite a rough text. Um, and you almost kind of don't notice it as much on the first reading. It's only when you begin to read it with translation in mind that that comes comes through. Um, and also, Hassan does does this thing quite often, I think, where he he takes for granted uh, a lot of knowledge on behalf of the audience at times um, because he was so incredibly well informed and kind of furiously intelligent. I think sometimes his argument his arguments are not always so easy to follow, especially in the original Arabic. Um, and so we can't, we you know, obviously without taking liberties and getting rid of his voice in any way, um, that was something that we contended with trying to make it obviously uh, faithful to the original, but slightly more accessible and um, concise at times. Um, and then another big difficulty, which I massively underestimated, is obviously because of the nature of the book, which is which is literary criticism. He references dozens and dozens and dozens of things, ranging from you know extremely crass uh, Zionist novels published in the 40s and 50s, but then also you know uh, Victorian novels, much, references much older um, Hebrew texts, and you know a, a real huge range of things. And we realized very quickly that actually just finding, uh, in most cases, using he was using English translations if, if, if the original language wasn't English. And obviously we had to avoid translating his translation of a text as much as possible. So what that entailed was finding everything that he, re that he quoted um, and finding the original. So as much as possible, we didn't in every single case, but as much as possible, anything that he, anything in, you know, that this English version that you read, it's the, it's the original text that we located from whatever he was uh, quoting rather than a translation of his translation of what he read. And even though that was very, very problematic and time consuming and quite stressful, I think it really enriched the experience for us both because it actually meant we had to figuratively follow his kind of literary tracks and read every single thing that he read uh, and, you know, obviously, and see it in, in context as well. Um, and also in doing so, obviously, that entailed quite a lot of research on, on our behalf. And in doing that, we discovered things that Hassan himself couldn't have known at the time, but massively vindicate uh, many elements of his argument. Um, so even though it was 
more work than I had reckoned with. I think it actually made it uh, a more rich experience. And I hope, I hope, hopefully, I think it manifests in the book as well, because particularly interesting things that we located during that process of research are now all in the book in, in translator's notes. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that gives you an idea of the, the kind of difficulties. And, then, and also it's, it's, I think he makes a lot of um, arguments and at times the arguments are quite hard to follow. Um, not because of his argumentation being poor, but because it's just, it's a, it's a complex subject. Uh, and like I say, at times he does take for granted a certain level of knowledge or kind of quick pickup of, of comprehension on behalf of the audience. Um, so that was a challenge as well. Um, the other thing that I, that I really want to talk about is the idea of <clears throat> the revolutionary as a critique. Um, within the Western um, publishing world, literary criticism is seen in a very specific way. But here you have a figure like um, kind of funny writing literary criticism. Can you tell us a little bit more about this idea of a revolutionary as a critique? Yeah, I mean, so it's almost not an, exagger not an exaggeration to say that just from reading the introduction of the original Arabic, which is probably about 18, no, about two years ago, I read it for the first time. I'd had it for a, a while, but I haven't got around to reading it and I read it. Almost within reading the introduction, I decided like, this, this has to be <laughs> translated. And one of the one of the main reasons for that is he concludes his introduction by saying um you know i'm paraphrasing obviously but he basically says you know this book is replete with um examples that contain you know offensive and untrue uh, and absurd things about palestinians and arabs but generally i don't even bother to refute them because it's taken for granted that you know the people i'm talking to um know what he refers to throughout the book as the heart of the matter um, and he says, you know, in, and in fact, the only reason I'm reading all these things and doing this analysis is on the basis of one principle, know your enemy. And the introduction ends with that, know your enemy. And I almost got kind of goosebumps reading that because, you know, not only is that, did that enemy kill him five years after he wrote those words, but because I think it, to use his own phrase, it, it strikes at the heart of the matter, which is that this was not a book written out of intellectual curiosity or scholarly ambition or, you know, kind of to fulfill a certain contract, uh, you know, on a financial level. This was a book written by a Palestinian revolutionary furiously trying to figure out not only, so I think, so one thing, to, to, to speak to your question, he was he wrote this at a, a particularly tumultuous revolutionary time. So it's written in 1967 and it's released. And written, you can see if you read it, the second half is clearly written after the, the June war, the 67 war. So he's writing at a time of a revolutionary tumultuous time, but also a time of defeat, a time in which in, in the 67 war, Israel has massively expanded territorially um is very much the victor um but not only that it's dominated the and kind of won to some extent the propaganda battle and you can see that's what he's grappling with in that moment um how have you know supposed progressives in the west been propagandized to such an extent that 
Israel's aggression in the Six Day War is perceived as something virtuous that they should support. Because, um, you know, I think obviously the, the broader context at this time is that large swathes of the left have been convinced or accepted that Israel is essentially a progressive force in the region to the extent to which, for example, you know, going to work on a kibbutz is, is considered at that time by large elements of the left as a kind of, you know, almost socialist or progressive thing to do. Um, so it's an enormous success of propaganda that you have people that would identify as progressive and leftist, etc., actively taking part in settler, settler colonialist practices and perceiving themselves to be doing something good, quote unquote. So it's in that context that he's trying to basically figure out how has this happened. Um, and also, I think another interesting thing about the moment in which the book is written is that it's written before the formation of the PFLP in which uh, Rassan was, it was instrumental. Um, and obviously the disaster of the Six Day War, or the Naksa, it impacted negatively the standing and the popularity of Arab nationalism, which him and George Habash up to that point had been proponents of. And so it's at, written at a kind of liminal stage, I think in his ideological uh, development uh, and the PFLP was founded one year later. Um, and just one further thing about you know the revolutionary as as critic, I think that was one of my big motivations in publishing this book um, to try and begin a process of a more rounded, complete view of uh, Panafani in the in the Anglosphere, because as you say, he was a revolutionary. He absolutely endorsed uh armed struggle he endorsed armed resistance and i think the fact that his non his non-fiction hasn't been translated into english has led to a slight softening or almost kind of um liberal kind of framing of kenafani to some extent as though kind of art is the only means of resistance um and you know this is not me saying that fiction does not play a role in resistance of course that it does but I think they, you know, armed resistance and resistance through art and other means, other peaceful means, they should all be considered kind of broader parts, broader constituent parts of a whole of resistance. Um, and I think that's been lost to, in some kind of Palestine solidarity circles in the West, which would rarely endorse uh, armed struggle in the way that Kanafani repeatedly and explicitly did. Um, so it's also, as much as it's about the, the the importance and the excellence of this book specifically, it's also about trying to encourage more more translation and more engagement with his nonfiction, um, because obviously there's much more, and you know there are many other books that could I could have chosen to do this, including for his example, uh, for example, his studies of um, Palestinian resistance literature. Um, but yeah, I've probably said enough. Yeah. So you're bringing a text that was written in a very specific historical period to the present, and much has changed in that time. And of course, there is the politics of citation and of course the politics of language. Sometimes language itself sometimes evolves, mutates to mean something completely different, even in a small time frame. So what was it like in terms of thinking through the language that one uses, um, in terms of references, in terms of the politics of citations, where there's specific ideas or issues that you had to keep in mind when bringing this text um, to the present, but again, not just framing him as 
the liberal framing, but really placing him in terms of his politics and ideas? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I one thing I have to admit is that um, there were mistakes in the references, um, which didn't help things. Um, you know, so for example, sometimes he would, the Arabic original references a certain uh, edition of a book, but then we got that edition and it's not on that page. So then we'd have to find another edition and realize it was on a different page. And um, occasionally there were just kind of errors as well. And I think that is probably, a, that's a reflection of the fact that I think a certain, the early portion of um, the book is based on his work at the University of Damascus when he was studying literature, uh, English literature. So I think some of it was probably kind of old and he was probably revisiting old notes and that led to some mistakes. But then I think also more broadly, it's a reflection of the fact that he was doing this in his part time in, in, in you know, in evenings on the weekend. Um, and I had, I had the privilege of um, obviously I, I corresponded with with Annie Kanafani, his, his widow, um, throughout the translation and, and, and in order to get her preface. But in, in Beirut in uh, July, I had the pleasure of, of meeting Annie and spending many hours with her um, and uh, Hassan's daughter, uh, Leila, as well. And one thing she told me, yeah, is that not only was he doing this kind of after all his political and journalistic uh, responsibilities and roles kind of at home where he could grab time, but it was very hard for him to get the, the various sources. And actually that's the sources that you mentioned sources. One, that's a very interesting question because I found myself reading it thinking, how was he getting these, these sources in 60s Beirut as a stateless Palestinian who was, you know, occasionally having to go into hiding? You know, this was not a stable environment conducive to, to kind of considered literary study. So it's just like incredible that he was even able to do it. Um, and basically she said that one of the big ways that it happened, in addition to the support from the Palestine Research Center, but which by the way, I should say is, was the initial publisher uh, of, of this book. So the PLO's research center in Beirut, the Palestine Research Center, uh, which 10 years after Kanafani's uh, assassination was destroyed by Israel and its entire archive uh, looted, but that's, a, that's I digress. Um, foreign friends were bringing him stuff that he needed basically um and i just had this kind of kind of image of this slightly chaotic you know at a desk waiting for some books to arrive for someone who's going to visit half notes remembered from his time in university of damascus you know you know he wasn't he was not writing taking his time you know all the time he wanted in a quiet peaceful library or, or home office you know this was he was as you said he was a revolutionary in chaotic tumultuous times writing this and that does show to, you know, to be completely honest, that does show at times in the text a little bit, but, and in the sources. Um, and again, I hope I hope that that has we've I don't want to say remedied that, but you know, we have where there has been specific mistakes, we have again pointed that out in translators' notes in the, at the back. Um, so hopefully, that the the English text kind of yeah, it it, it helps. Um, that I realize that doesn't really answer your question, but there are so many different avenues the question of sources and, and references can, can go in. Um, so one of the things that I really was thinking about when in one of the previous conversations today, um, one of the panelists talked about how 
sometimes the publication of Palestinian writers in translation becomes complicated, sometimes because of, at least in the United States, the refusal to publish Palestinian writers because they're considered too political. And yeah. how somehow in, in, in Britain, it's just a little easier, not that it's it's, it's become lotty. Um, so you are publishing a book that is fundamentally questions of politics and existence of the Palestinian people by a revolutionary. Were there specific concerns about a project like this being derailed or a project like this not reaching um, a wider audience because you do want to bring this into a public conversation? But how does one have these public conversations, even in translation, when the politics of the public space has almost made it impossible to discuss certain kind of Palestinian texts and spaces? How do you, as both an editor, as someone who is championing these translations, how does one think through these things? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, and actually, I, I only caught the panel immediately before ours, but I was I was very struck by something Sonia said about Palestinian writers always having to, to feel they have to tiptoe uh, or be on the defensive. Um, because in this book, I mean, as he did in life, Rassan absolutely refuses to tiptoe or be on the defensive in, in any way whatsoever. Um, and as Sonia said as well, she's, uh, it struck me when she said, I, I, you know, I don't want to be careful. This is my life. And I think that really comes through in, um, in Kanafani's text, you know, not in a way that makes it uh, not kind of objective and serious, serious analysis, but, you know, you can feel he is grappling with something of great importance to him beyond, you know, like I said, professional ambition or intellectual curiosity. This is him. This is his life. Um, and that's obviously very moving and powerful. And I don't really think I've read literary criticism of like that before. You know, I mean, I think that was what to go back to one of your first questions, you know, why this book? I, I just re remember when I read the Arabic, this thing, I've never read anything really like this before. Um, I've now gone on such a tangent. I forgot. Oh no, yeah. So the the, the environment. I mean, I, yeah. You know, I'm not. I'm not naive. Um, is this going to be reviewed by mainstream uh, publications, by newspapers, by? Um, is it going to be stocked in? You know, um, kind of the mainstream book book chains. You know, Waterstones here or you know wherever. Um, is it going to kind of be one of those books put at the front of the window or you know? No, it's not. Um, and I think it's incumbent upon us to to come up with alternative avenues. Um, I mean, one good thing is that the way in which we publish it, it does get picked up by third party sellers. Um, so you can, for example, buy it on Barnes and Noble in the US. Is it going to be in, in Barnes and Noble shops? No, I don't think it's going to be. Um, and is it has it? It hasn't been reviewed massively. Um, but I think that was to be expected, and it hasn't really stopped. Um, it hasn't really stopped sales. Sales. I mean, I don't really have. I'm not. We didn't really have a huge gauge on how much it would sell or not. But I'm. I'm very pleased with, with sales. Um, and I know that some for, some reviews are forthcoming, um, and it's been received very well on the whole um you know obviously zionists will absolutely despise this book 
Um, and, and, and in fact, I'm almost surprised there hasn't been a kind of negative, very negative review of it in, in a Zionist publication calling it, you know, anti-Semitic ramblings. Uh, that probably will happen at some point. Um, but again, it's about believing and, and knowing there is an audience there. Um, and I think one of the one of the big audiences I had in mind for this book, which anecdotally I know has already kind of uh, been reading and, and buying and, and, and engaging with it, is diaspora Palestinians and Arabs, other Arabs who you know their their <clears throat> Arabic reading ability is not fantastic, you know through through no fault of their own growing up in in the West, um, but are politically engaged, are aware of Kanafani and want to engage with him in a more meaningful way. Uh, especially his political work. Um, and so it's been very, very vindicating getting messages of thanks from exactly those people, you know, Palestinians, especially in the US, who are craving the ability to engage with his work, but just don't quite have the Arabic language ability. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think we're almost coming. I think we're a little over time. So I have one last question for you. Why the multiple prefaces? We have uh, introduction with um, by Stephen uh, Salaita. There's any kind of funny. There's multiple prefaces. I'm just wondering was and, and there's an introduction. Was there a very specific reason why you kind of layer the introduction to the book? There's a translator's note. There's multiple. Uh, is is there a reason you layered this introduction for people? There is. There is. Yeah. And I. I mean, I. I was conscious that there is quite a lot before the book, but uh, just on a very practical level, the book is actually short, so I didn't think that was a problem. Um, and basically, so the the preface by Annie Kanafani, uh, I felt very strongly about wanting that personal family uh, involvement uh, and the opportunity for, for her to say what she would like to say anyone who's not aware, Annie Kanafani is um, Hassan Kanafani's widow who still lives in, in Beirut where they met. Um, so I wanted that preface for that more kind of personal um, personal reflection on the compilation of the book and of Hassan as a, as a man. Um, the very short initial preface by Anis Sayer of the PRC, I wanted that there because um, it's important to point out that this was published by the Palestine Research Center and the importance of institutional support for Palestinians uh, and the way in which essentially the Israelis destroyed that institutional infrastructure that the Palestinian resistance uh, had developed in, in, in Lebanon. In Lebanon. Um, and Stevens, I wanted because I wanted something that placed it, that talked, that spoke about the text from now and placed it in a, in a, in a certain context, uh, and it's in the current context, sorry, uh, but also spoke about the historical context in which it was written. Um, and then the translator's note, finally, we felt that was necessary because of the various difficulties, difficulties which I've alluded to. Um, and, you know, I, I think far too often, and I'm sure many people listening would appreciate this, I think translators are not given enough credit, basically, and not given enough voice uh, and so I really wanted Mahmoud to have the the opportunity to to reflect on the process of translation and what that had engaged, uh, and and kind of I think that sets it up nicely for for how people those the combination of all those things sets the book up nicely. Whereas if it was just on its own, 
I th I'd, I'm not sure some people would engage with it in this in the same same way. Um, thank you so much for this book. Um, I actually got this book um, <clears throat> just before I went to do my own field work in India, where we were we are right now with my dear friend Francesca Rekia. We are working on a book on India's political prisoners, and one of the things that we grappled with, and I did in, in particular, is to think about the language and language of resistance. And I carried this book with me, um, and I was reading it as we were doing the field work when the book arrived. And it's just remarkable. And um, Bhakti will tell you how I was just, um, it was very important for me that we talked about this book, we championed this book, but also made sure that um, the series that you're editing is something that reaches more people. Thank you so much for your time. And Thank you. The book is available and you can order it um, in bookstores. It's, it's available online. And I hope um, I hope a lot of you do buy this book. Thank you so much. And again, Bhakti Sringarpare for putting all of this together and making sure that we're all having, we're all in conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you.